Looking to improve your web application security? Probly is reinventing web application security. Probly focuses on the vulnerabilities that matter, eliminates false positives with evidence-based scanning, and provides a simple point-and-shoot solution that is easy to use. Probly's thorough coverage ensures accurate identification of vulnerabilities in any modern web application or API. Improve your web application security processes by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Probly and start your free trial today. When it comes to web app and API security, the choice is simple. You can choose Fastly's security solution that teams will actually use in full blocking mode, just like 90% of their customers. Or you can stick with costly options that you probably just turn off. You can get Fastly's all-in-one platform that protects apps everywhere they live, however they're built. Or departments can agree to disagree. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash Fastly to learn more. Or you can just wish you had. DisruptOps helps you find and fix cloud security issues fast. Getting bombarded with irrelevant alerts is frustrating. DisruptOps gives security and DevOps teams prioritized findings and routes relevant alerts to Slack or Microsoft Teams with automated response options that save you time. Finally, security is inside your workflow instead of in your way. Listeners can access the full platform free for 30 days by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash DisruptOps. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 156, and this is the segment where we talk about the news. First, a few announcements, though. Uh, do you want to stay in the week? Uh, do you... <clears throat> Again. <laughs> do you want to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher or our YouTube channel. Sign up for our mailing list. Join our Discord server, which we watch while we do these shows. And follow us on our newest live streaming platform, Twitch. Security Weekly is also ecstatic to announce that Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December, uh, the 5th through the 8th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. Call for presentations is open now and early registration is as well. So please get those in. I think you've got a couple more weeks on the CFP before we close that up. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked to submit your presentation and register for the early registration price before it expires. All right, on to the news, John. You've got some good stuff here this week. Yeah, I do. I, I have to say first, um, you know, looking forward to hoping to go into the conference down in um, at towards the end of the year at, at Lake Buena Vista. I, I feel like, um, you know, I'm, I'm no kids. My wife and I are quite happy where we are just being the two of us. So um, the way I think every time I hear someone talk about Lake Buena Vista, I think it's uh, as a conference place. I never think of it as like Disney World and like pl a place right? that people go to for fun. <laughs> sort of funny that. Well, it's me in Vegas, you know, like uh, I, I don't think I've ever gambled. I don't think I've ever spent a dime on gambling. To me, that's that's conference place. That's conference city. Yeah. That's where I go to see my friends. <laughs> you know, before we dive into the news, it's interesting. I almost mentioned it in the last segment, but I started rereading Jurassic Park um, for the first time in uh, probably 15 years, 20 years, something like that. Like I've watched a movie since then, but I, I haven't reread the book. And it's interesting because they, they do get into coding quite a bit, you know, and coding practices. Um, and there's this one point where they've got this system that counts all the dinosaurs in the park. And they, they're pretty sure they have 238 dinosaurs in the park. Uh, and they're so sure that the way they, the system that actually tracks the dinosaurs, 
is actually limited to looking for 238 dinosaurs because they're so sure that the, you know, the geneticists have designed these dinosaurs to where they can't reproduce. You know, they're, they're so sure of the bounds that they've set, you know, on, on their programming. And, and, and they even treat, you know, these, uh, the genetics as software, like, like they're on, they're talking about going from 4.3 to version 4.4 uh, on, you know, building these actual dinosaurs uh it's really interesting read i I mean i've never thought of jurassic park as uh you know best coding practices you know a guide for best coding (laughs) practices but there's quite a bit in there you know and as soon as you know like the the mathematician is like hey you know what happens if you ask that system for 300 animals and they're like but there's not they can't breed he's like just just humor me you know, and of course they do it. And there's like 290 something animals. <laughs> it's funny. I don't think I don't think I've read the books. I mean, Michael Crichton usually does good stuff. Um, I know I've read some of his other material. Little, little. I don't want to call it. Um, you know, it's sort of candy, but it's still they're usually pretty good reads. So it's um, not surprising he has that in there. But when I think of Jurassic Park, especially the first one, one of it was a bunch of SGI computers. I, I actually at the time they had a yeah. playing cards that the that they were giving out. So I actually still have some of my SGI playing cards. Um, nice. And then the little blonde girl, I can't remember, can't remember her name, uh, holding up the copy of, I think it was Advanced Programming in a Unix Environment. And like me being a nerd back in the 90s, I'm like, I've got that book! But um, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's my memory so, with that movie. Yeah, the, the girl in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, Lex. That's Lex. <laughs> and the, uh, this is a Unix system. I know this. That's Lex. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so great read. I'm going through it right now, and yeah, Crichton is is notorious for over researching his books, you know, and 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 talking to experts and going really deep into the topics. I, I think later in his career, a little, little bit more candy, a little bit more, you know, a little bit less of that. Wow. But Jurassic Park goes goes way into the weeds on on some of the stuff, and it's it's uh, uh, very interesting. It goes into hacking and stuff like that as well. So so super interesting. So gives our listeners a bit of a lighter reading besides some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Um, I'll dive into the first article. We I don't have this up in our publishing system yet. It, it's it's we're 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 working out a bug there, sort of talking about bugs. Sure. But um, <laughs> I hinted I hinted at this in the last segment, and I actually found the article, so I want to talk about it um, from the register. Uh, it's quoting a study from Osterman Research. Eighty-one percent of developers admit to knowingly releasing applications with vulnerabilities in them. Um, and that sounds shocking, right? But obviously, we're all under, all under deadlines. And probably a lot of these things are, are fairly low-key. I'm, I'm guessing, what, probably 20 30% of those are like, hey, you're, you're logging um, some sort of sensitive info, maybe not a password, but like, you know, something in a log that shouldn't be in there. So it's, it's a vulnerability, but it's still not quite the same as a SQL on the front side. But um, I, I think it's, it's a good stat because it, it, it gives us um, something to talk about within our companies. Um, or even with their open source projects, right? It's it, it they've they've gone through and they've quoted a bunch of, of pretty great people at, at great companies in the industry, but you know it's it's it comes back to something we've been talking about here for a few weeks now, Adrian. Of um, just because I know there's a vulnerability in something in my application, I still have to encourage management to realize that it's worthwhile for us to spend time to fix this, and that frequently is a um, 
you know, that's, that's comes down to an expense basically. So you're asking someone, Hey, can we go and spend money on fixing this vulnerability? What's the chance of someone actually finding it? So, um, it's that difference between, you know, some people who are a little less security conscious refer to it as like CVE patching, right? You're, you're patching sort of known vulnerabilities that are published out there versus what's in your own application. Um, but you know, two things, one is for developers out there who might be listening to us. It's not just you, everyone, we're all doing this. Um, and I'm sure I can say I've probably done this at some point myself in the past. Hopefully I've gone back and patched stuff, but it's, it's a constant, the, the struggle is real. How do we make sure that, um, we try to minimize uh, the exposure that we're putting out there in applications. Yeah, it, you know, and there's an interesting parallel in uh, when you're doing creative work too. You know, it's it's um, you become familiar with the the concept of uh, you know perfection is the enemy of done, and you know it's it's uh, you know getting it to a point where it, where it's good enough. You know, and you know mm-hmm. you're going to release stuff without flaws because deadlines or you know quotas and, and and things like that so it's um yeah and and generally you know getting getting to that point where it doesn't have any vulnerabilities just isn't realistic in a lot of cases you know so uh, you can't expect people to do it so it becomes more of a you know again you know we see this in a lot of infosec where we need some kind of concept of prioritization you know, we, we've got to be able to prioritize this stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe that's education for developers, like like understanding what's okay to, you know, to leave for fixing later versus, you know, more critical. And it's got to be fixed right away. And I think it's, it's sort of a good lead back. Yeah, it's a good lead back to talking about what we're talking about with, with um, Clint from the point of view of it's probably going to be easier for me to convince a manager to... Um, spend money on making sure we have secure defaults, uh, whether that's in the, the software which we select, the frameworks we select, or actually, you know, creating those um, abstraction layers for like the database we talked about. So I'm, I'm guessing if I put my manager hat on for a second, I'd rather try to spend money upfront on one thing and, and sort of get things done right versus every time a release comes out, have to worry about, okay, what did we do this time and what do I need to care about? Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's a really good one. It looks like um, something that was commissioned by Immersive Labs, um, and uh, you do have to fill out uh, a form to get that. But uh, looks like it, it's got some good stuff in it. Maybe worth uh, checking out. And, and the article, the register article you mentioned, I just dropped in the Discord, um, and that that looks looks worth checking out as well. <laughs> It loads an image of a, a burning house. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's an epidemic. You know, everything doesn't isn't a pandemic and an epidemic. I don't know about that. You know, that again, going back to that uh, metric, you know, three percent of breaches, uh, the bad guys use vulnerabilities. So epidemic. I mean, in terms yeah, of, of strong work. wasting people's time, I mean, a lot of those vulnerabilities are, are not worth fixing, but, you know, regulations will force you to fix them anyway in a lot of those cases. So I, I think that's that's one of the big problems in, in the vulnerability space is uh, uh, finding a way that you can actually tune out the ones that don't matter where there's, there's just no ROI mm-hmm. on spending time on them. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's worth saying for a second, um, 
I know we've, we've got so much. We're not going to get through all the stories we've got today, but um, <laughs> we'll try and get through a lot of them. But it's worth saying on that particular point, and I think even I've said here in, in previous episodes of like, oh my God, we keep spending all this money on AppSec and like things aren't getting better. Um, it's probably worth looking at it from the other aspect and going, you know, as you said, 3%. If we weren't putting all the efforts into that we do at AppSec, either AppSec or InfoSec or, or cloud security, all these sort of um, uh, DevSecOps areas, how bad would things look? Um, so we're, we're probably, you know, it, we're, we're going to a lot of effort. I know you probably have some interesting thoughts on this, but we've gone to a lot of effort to, to, to make things better um, at a crazy expense. But what would the alternative be? Right. Yeah, and I, I've seen crazy stuff like uh, teams spending 70%, 80% of their time on vulnerability management and, and uh, patching, repair, fixing bugs, you know, and then for that to be 3% of the problem, you know, I mean, clear, clearly there's got to be a reckoning there, you know, and I think some of it is tooling, you know, the, you know, the idea that uh, the earlier you fix it, um, you know, the, the less expensive it is in, in terms of time and labor stuff like that. And, uh, and then the idea of killing entire classes, you know, uh, moving up to a higher level where you've got a framework underneath that takes care of, uh, some, some no brainer kind of low hanging fruit for you, you know, or, or moving up to the no code level or something like that, uh, or using, you know, I love the idea of using uh, wrappers and things like that. And just some, some languages like Go, for example, you know, take entire classes uh, of vulnerabilities off the board. Yeah, so um, hey, you, you've got a couple other interesting articles here, too. Um, yeah, talk about this, this ransomware one here. You know, it's uh, more at the philosophical level, but... Uh, I think this yeah, there, there's a there's a pattern on some of these articles this week, huh? Um, and it may be I I don't know if it's where my mind's coming from or, or what we're seeing coming out. Um, we're probably still a few weeks from the the summer PR ramp up for Hacker Summer Camp, and for, for those not familiar with the phrase for a, a Black Hat and Defcon, we get the the second sort of wave of articles over the year after uh, the stuff we right. have in in January Feb for RSA. But this was an interesting one from the point of view of. Um, it's it, again. It's it's a bit of a think piece, but starting off with a with a title of ransomware is not out of control. Security teams are, um, and I think this comes right back to what you're just saying about that. You know, we're we're putting seventy percent of our budget into three percent of our issues, um, and it's it's not that most companies aren't trying. I mean, some are not, but usually what we're seeing is, well, we're humans, right? So we're we're, and I know especially engineers, we get so our heads down deep in what we're doing. That very seldom do we sort of take a step back and go, oh, that door over there is open. Maybe we should just do that, fix that, instead of worrying about the chain link and the, the barbed wire around the whole building. Um, I'm up in a, a – from with the heat wave we've got going on the West Coast, I'm, I'm a few hours north of uh, Seattle today sort of trying to get some air conditioning and cooling. And I was out driving around this weekend, and you know, I saw a BP refinery, and they had, like, they had all the security things which we expect people – which we talk about, like CISSP books and stuff like that, right? The the concrete barriers inside of a, a, um, a, a barbed wire fence with another barbed wire fence inside, and you, you can see the path, path where they're actually going and monitoring and securing this. And so it was interesting to see someone actually really care about physical security, but they're doing that because they've they've taken a step back and they've taught and they've done the threat modeling. If we want to bring it back to DevSecOps here a little bit, um, and the question being, are we in pure infosec? 
um, who aren't thinking about the physical security and actual physical threats, are we spending our resources and our thoughts on, on the right areas? So um, I think that's really the, the, the core behind the article. Um, but I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that from what you've scanned so far, Adrian. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, it's interesting in my time, you know, doing pen testing and, and even as a, a PCI QSA, you know, one of the things I, I learned about companies going in and uh, doing audits or doing pen tests and things like that is that a lot of folks only understand the, the one piece that they deal with. You know, they mm -hmm. don't have that big picture view. They don't understand, you know, certainly they don't understand uh, like the big picture view of, of security. That, that's a really difficult thing uh, to, to get a handle on, you know, but even just how an application works, you know, because a, a lot of being a PCI QSA and, and somewhat, you know, scoping a pen test, you ask a lot of questions. You know, and, uh, you know, one of the things you have to do when you go through a PCI audit is you have to uh, put together a data flow diagram. You know, the, the customer has to do that. And, uh, and it's a really good exercise uh, for threat modeling and for, you know, just if, if you're going to audit the system, you got to understand how it works, right? And, and how that credit card data, which is like the critical thing in PCI, gets from point A to point Z. And uh, everything that happens to it in between is, is it protected at each uh, stage here, you know, where it's stored in a database, where it comes in, where it goes out, you know. And um, it, after 20 hours, I, it's, it's just it's depressing to find yourself <laughs> when it occurs to you, maybe I'm the SME on, <laughs> on this company's, uh, you know, main application here or something like that, just because everybody only knows their piece. Yeah. And I, I think you you led right into what I was going to say, which is um, a, a lot of places don't have that, the overall security person. So maybe that's the point where you bring in a consultant for a few days or a few weeks and say, hey, you know, let us take that step back and actually figure out what's going on. Um, you know, I was just looking through, they've got a, a three points in this, in this article. Um, most common mistakes we're seeing, or at least this particular person or vendor. Number one, no patch strategy. Uh, so in other words, how you actually go about triaging these things, which, you know, it's leading right back to what we we're talking about. We're sort of repeating ourselves today, but it's good to see other people repeating this as well. Uh, number two, and this, from my ops background, this one is huge to me. No understanding of what normal traffic looks like on a network. Yeah. Right. So if you don't understand what, you know, I'm an, I am an engineer at heart. And from that, I'm talking about before I work on a problem or before I fix something, I want to have a baseline. And and this is sort of the literally the same thing. I mean, how many attacks am I getting on a normal day? What does my traffic look like? How many errors am I usually seeing? Like, yeah. if you don't understand these basic things, then when you're actually you see something suspicious, it's like, okay, has that always been there, or is that you know something someone figured out a way in? And then number three is is um, sort of a personal one to me actually. You know, relying too much on backups, um, and especially for ransomware. Right for the last five-ish years when, you know, this thing's been around, if friends ask me, you know, how do I, how do I recover for, you know, my, my buddy's buddy, um, his machine where he surfs too much porn on, he's got, you know, compromised somehow, he's going to lose all his data and his, like, everything he's had for the last 10 years, what can he do? I'm like, well, he could have gone back and actually backed shit up in the first place, pardon my French. But I think that's, that, that argument, which even I made, has fallen apart over the last year or so once the bad guys have realized, hey, we can just sell that data. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's good to have 
um, you know, BCP and disaster recovery, all these type of things. But at the same time, don't just rely on that particular aspect of things. And I, I think those are sort of there are three points which are none of those are talking about um, cross-site scripting or shifting left or container security right. or all these sort of nitty gritty things we more talk basic. about. But they're just as important, right? If not more so. Yeah, and it, it's uh, you know I think it's important you know to um, yeah yeah and, and and I think these easily fall under what we call the basics you know so when when I train incident responders um, yeah I mean that that's thing number one is know what your baseline looks like you know because the mm. moment you have an incident you start digging into logs and you start digging into network traffic. Uh, everything looks crazy. You find a bunch of broken things that have nothing to do with what you're investigating. That there's a thousand rabbit holes you could dive down, and probably will, uh, you know, because you don't know that that's normal for your network. Because the first time you've looked at it is during the anomaly, you know. So now everything looks anomalous. You know, you've got no no context and no baseline uh, for what that is, and and a lot of it is just making sure people have the time to do this kind of stuff to build these processes and it's it's just getting out of that uh that firefighting mindset and very much this is a, a psychological mindset of hey you know not only should we put a backup solution in place but you know like we should pretend that we lost stuff and try to restore it you know and and test out the integrity of those backups and that we even know how to use the backup software correctly and we know how to restore things you know because there's a lot of people in process stuff that fall down hard in bcpdr situations and breach situations and stuff like that just because uh when the emergency occurs when the the breach or incident occurs that's the first time they're doing that thing yeah. that function Yep, but uh, talking about but yeah, let's talk about one of the articles. Not not even a security thing. Like you know, my my comment yeah. earlier about um, having those diagrams. Like that's just an IT thing, you know. Like just yeah. uh, know, knowing how your stuff works. But it's so um, again, it's it's something. It's so basic, but even and the thing is, right? So again, as an engineer, we're going to try and find a tool. Don't go looking for the tool, right? Just grab a paper and a pen or a whiteboard or something and just start sketching out what does your flow what does your data flow look like for your for your application you're working on right um and you're going to see some inputs you're going to see some outputs and like don't worry about what's going on inside just think about those two and like okay do i do i have everything up that i know about on there and then for those inputs and outputs what what's going on what could people do and it, it's such a simple thing to start with but it, it a lot of this is once we start communicating with others or even just communicating with a whiteboard by itself, we start getting other thoughts in our head and start realizing, hey, excuse me, there's a better way to do this. Um, so it doesn't have to be some big, crazy, complex thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think this plays well into uh, one of the articles I have, which is titled, I, I Know What I Didn't Do Last Summer. You know, and, and kind of the point here is uh, it just being more intentional with projects, with resources, with, with uh, um, infrastructure, you know, where, you know, if I set up a, a POC in our, you know, one of our AWS accounts today, you know, and I get hit by a truck, I leave, you know, whatever happens, how long is that going to run with nobody noticing that it's there? You know, having, mm -hmm. having some kind of... Um, framework life cycle around uh everything that we build whether it's uh 
you know, a, a process to, you know, for expenses, you know, like a lot of people's expense processes uh, result in a ton of Word documents and Excel documents uh, just floating around in people's emails all over the place, which is probably not ideal. Um, same thing happens with code. Same thing happens with infrastructure. Uh, you know, and and uh, there's a lot of stuff that gets abandoned, you know, and it has an impact on billing. It has an impact on on security, you know, because obviously nobody's patching that. Nobody's updating that, you know. So it's, um, you know, especially with, with the cloud, you know, with uh, a lot of the tooling that we have now, so easy to crank something up and forget about it. It seems like that's something that sh- there should be a standard round. Um and I'm not aware of one. I mean, at previous companies, I've, I've written um, just thinking purely about cloud um, or IS and stuff like that or cloud services. I've written scripts which go through a Python script, which will go through my stuff and recursively put a tag on everything that's mine that like, you know, this is used by this person. This is your email address. This is the department they're in. But I've now had to rewrite that at three separate places. And that's not, you know, it, that's just thinking purely about cloud services from like, you know, the, the Azure's and the Amazon. So it seems like that's something there should be a, 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 an actual structure that there's a standard for so that every time we go through and do this, um, it's, it, you know, remember thinking about the security and CIA triad. Um, it's not just purely about, I mean, cost can be a denial of service. Um, it's a resource denial of service and a resource usage. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of these security concepts aren't just purely about, oh, my God, someone got my PII. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, there's so many places that you can apply it, and and, and again, that, that's why I think this goes along with that theme of of uh, you know, kind of shifting how we think about uh, you know the the things that we're responsible for, like like data, for example. A lot of places don't have uh, data classification standards, and and they don't have any kind of life cycle where they say, you know, okay, we can get rid of that now. We we don't need that anymore. You know, that that data only needs to be stored for one year or, you know, like like in some fields, they make it easy, you know, because you're legally required to hold something for a certain number of years. But for stuff where there aren't regulations around it, you should still have your own standard that says, you know, okay, we don't need to keep that indefinitely. So maybe then when you actually have a breach, you're at least limiting uh, the damage that's done by by getting rid of stuff that you don't need. Yeah. And, I've, and that, I've, that's a good. I was go going to say that's a good example, though, right? Because I mean, there's lots of startups and probably bigger companies now that that's their specialty is classifying data. Um, and I think the the ownership issue is is simple enough that I don't know of. I might know of one, but I don't know of, of many companies out there that that's their core business. Is like, let me go through and just you know do not so much asset discovery, but tracking of ownership who owns this thing or what's going on or you know um how many people have as part of their um uh employee exit uh um, policy uh not just you know disable badge take their laptop that type of thing go back through and figure out what cloud resources they were using so um yeah. we're, we're getting a little outside of appsec but it is sort of still DevSecOps. so i think it's, it's related to what we're talking about here but um yeah I, again I mean, this is at the this is at the conceptual okay. level, you know, like there's this mm-hmm. app, this great app I used to use uh, that's kind of designed for keeping track of uh, the time that you spend on billable projects. And you can set your, you can create projects at your billable rates called Toggle. And uh, they've got an app that you can put on your phone, you can put on your computer. And the one that you put on your computer, um, you know, you say, oh, okay, I've started this task. 
uh, for this project, uh, if your computer goes idle and you come back to it, uh, it'll actually say, hey, uh, you went idle. Do you want to keep all this time? Uh, or do you want to keep this timer running? Like, it, it, and even on your phone, like if I leave my computer and check my phone, my phone will say, if I've got the same app there logged into the same account, it'll say, hey, do, do you intend for this timer to still be running or did you just forget to hit stop on it? You know, and I, I think that's kind of the concept that we need uh, for some of the stuff that we build, you know, is, is to build it with an end date in mind, you know, build, you know, everything doesn't need to last forever. <laughs> yeah. And I think at um, one of the previous places, one of those tags, which we put on was exactly that. How long are you planning on using this resource? But again, that's something that someone inside the company was smart enough to, to realize we should be tagging our, our, our resources with that. Um, I haven't seen that more recently or previously. And again, like I said, that should, that should be a simple standard, right? That, that should be a, um, this is just a schema, which you apply to anything you're doing in the cloud. Um, yeah, super simple. And it, even it's, even if it's not, uh, um, automatically delete after one quarter, but just come back and say, Hey, are you still using this very simple conversation to have and, um, save us a lot of pain probably. Yeah. Uh, so you've got a you've got another story here. I found uh, I think everybody found pretty interesting uh, that Microsoft signed a rootkit, <laughs> a couple of rootkits, I think. Yeah, yeah. So and, I guess and this um, wasn't this wasn't somebody stealing the signing keys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is. I think this came out over the weekend, so it might be news to some people. I'm I'm trying to get better at. We have this one. One of the bad things about recording ASW on Monday mornings is. When I get off air, I'll, I'll find stuff in my inbox. I'm like, damn it, I wish I knew about that two hours ago. And this one I caught yesterday. Uh, but yeah, so um, uh, a vendor who, you know, this is a standard process. A vendor out there had a, a device driver, which, you know, for any device driver on modern operating system, you need the, uh, the OS vendor usually to, to sign it, at least for the commercials like uh, Microsoft and uh, Mac. Um, so they submitted a signing request to, uh, with, with no malicious intention at all. They had this application, they had this driver, they submitted to Microsoft for, to get signed so it can be released into windows and be used legitimately. Um, Microsoft said, we'll happily do that for you. And the next thing you know, you've got this driver out there that I believe it had multiple rootkits in it, not just one. Um, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a mixture. We'll, we'll call it one for now. One's bad enough, right? right? But Okay, so uh, everyone's realized the mistake, that, and this probably happened, I'm guessing, a few weeks ago, and we're just hearing about it now. Um, the vendor went back through, they, they cleaned stuff up, they, they submitted a new request, Microsoft signed it, that went out. But step back a second and go, hey, hang, hang on, um, how did that, what happened there? What, what was missed? Um, and I'm sure there's folks at Microsoft are scrambling on this now, or they have scrambled, but it's not going to happen again. But it, it's, it's something to think through, even something com- coming from a, a large vendor, or in this case, multiple large vendors, uh, we need to be careful about what we're doing. Everyone makes mistakes, but then, you know, with our thinking about our own little neck of the woods, how would we try to ensure this doesn't happen in our company? Um, it's funny. Yeah, I usually I, don't think of one, one real quick one on there. I usually don't yeah. think of antivirus scans on my, I mean, so in general, in the past, when people have mentioned like antivirus scans on containers, I'm like, why would you do that? That's sort of dumb. But um, obviously, there's uses for it here. In some cases, this wasn't a container. But the point being, there's, you know, if you're releasing something publicly, 
it's probably a good idea to check for those basics like is there a known malware in the damn thing so um it, it's it, something else to add to your ci process i guess at the end of the day Right. It's a tough problem. Um, and, and I think you have this problem at two levels. So you've got, you know, Microsoft has this problem with, and anybody that has an app store or, you know, a, a container registry, you know, or a- anything where people are, are getting code from them, you know, w- whether it's, uh, you know, you're getting a package from GitHub or, you know, you're, you're pulling a container uh, from a container registry, you know, or, or, or getting something from a from an app store, you know, there's got to be some kind of hygiene process that goes through that and make sure that there's there's not anything malicious in there. And I think we've seen uh, anybody that's ever had an app store or you know a repository like that has struggled with this. And and there's been stories in the news of, oh, you know, it, you know, if it's not somebody actually maliciously getting something in there, it'd be a researcher seeing what they can get away with, right? And then you have this yeah. problem at the enterprise level. And I think it's a lot more difficult there. You know, Microsoft will solve this problem. You know, they'll, they'll figure this out. Um, but uh, the fact that they had this problem, um, you know, means that you also have to prepare for this at the enterprise level. You know, what, what if the, the stuff that you're pulling from NPM is, is you know, suddenly malicious? <laughs> you know, like it's the same package. Uh, that you've always grabbed, you know, but whoever maintained that package uh, either lost access to it or maybe even gave away or turned over access to it to somebody that they thought was going to maintain that open source project for them or that library for them, you know, and maybe had malicious intent, you know, and and uh, I, I think it's a lot harder to do at that level to, to detect uh, those kinds of software supply chain attacks, uh, you know, when you've got containers coming from here and libraries coming from there. And, you know, uh, if you think about the patching process, the amount of code that comes in from the outside uh, all day long, every day, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. I think one of the core things I hope listeners of the show sort of take away of, of this or any, any security weekly show or really any podcast is it becomes a thought experiment while you're listening to this in the car or, you know, you're working out or you're, you know, weeding or whatever you listen to a podcast um, is that, you know, it's a thought process or a thought experiment of not just, you know, what am I learning that I can improve in the future, but Hey, it's, I'm due to go back and review some of the things that we're, we're doing. We think we're at best practices in place. Um, best practices change over time. Right. So um, how can I improve what I've already got going on? Do I have any open holes? Um, you know, in this case, do I need to add antivirus to my, my build chain? Um, you know, so it's, that's sort of one of the takeaways I hope people get from stuff like this. And, and that's a tough thing is antivirus isn't going to catch a lot of this, this kind of stuff. Like, yeah. you know, it's trickier. It's, it's, uh, you know, looking for, you know, behaviors, you know, where, where those network connections reaching out to. And we actually talked about this with, uh, uh, one of our, I think it was a sponsored segment I'm trying to remember who it was uh you know but they were they were talking about um um vendors actually releasing uh specifications for their software and what it should do you know so not just an s bomb but you know like like here's the host names that it should be reaching out to the 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 domain names or the ip addresses um 
you know, here's what to expect uh, behavior-wise from this piece of software, and then giving it to you in JSON or, you know, some kind of uh, format that you can easily load into something. Because at that at the scale we're talking about, it, it's got to be at least partially automated, right? Mm. Yeah, if you think if you think of that off air, who that was or which episode, let me know. I'm one of the things I was, was working on and still am is um, with CNCF is the concept of a, a security nutrition label. So it's really sort of that. Mm-hmm. But how do you, you obviously have a JSON format? But think about like a, a security label we are a security label, um, a nutrition label we have on on packaged foods. How can I quickly tell? Hey, this should be talking out on the network, or this should be um, doing something as rude, or some of those high-level concepts that let people make a, a go/no-go if they should be using the software package or what they should be expecting from it. So it'd be cool to see what those guys are doing. Exactly. Yeah. Searching. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll have to. I'll have to let you know on that. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was on. I want to say it was on either Enterprise Security Weekly or Business Security Weekly, but yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely a cool idea, um, and I, I think we're going to have to get to that point because it's it's just uh, uh, too difficult to do otherwise. I think the vendor was Extra Hop, though, that that mm. is is proposing. Uh, you know, they're they're trying to be an example of that and do that themselves, and uh, proposing that that others do that as well. Basically, saying you know, the the S bomb, the nutrition label, isn't quite enough. We've got to go a little bit beyond that, uh, you know, to, to say, hey, you know, our software shouldn't be reaching out to China. <laughs> you know? mm. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. You know, I like that a lot of the stories are kind of, you know, more deep thinks on the, on the level of, uh, you know, here's how you should be looking at uh, security. Here's how you should be thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I love that kind of stuff because it's... Uh, you know, instead of handing you a fish, it's, you know, we're, we're more teaching you how to fish. <laughs> Think like a security person. All right. Thank you very much, John. Uh, and uh, Mike Shima will be back with you next week. And that's it for, for uh, Application Security Week. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. 